Chapter 2 of George Boring, A Tale of Cataringes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Conover, Wyndham, Maine. George Boring, A Tale of Cataringes by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. Chapter 2 For six years after this, all went smoothly with George Boring and myself. We met almost daily, although we did not lodge together, as once we had done, nor spend the evening hours together, because of, of course, he had now his home and family rising around him. By the summer of 1832 he had three children, and was expecting a fourth at no very distant time. His eldest son was named after me, Robert Bistry, for such is my name, which I have often thought of changing, not that the name is at all a bad one, as among friends and relations, but that, when I am addressed by strangers, Mr. Bistry has a jingling sound, suggestive of childish levity. Sir Robert Bistry however, would sound uncommonly well, and, as some people say, less eminent artists, but perhaps, after all, I am not so very old as to be in a hurry. In the summer of 1832, as elderly people will call to mind, and the younger sort will have heard or read, the cholera broke over London like a bursting meteor. Such panic had not been known, I believe, since the time of the plague, in the reign of Charles the Second, as painted beyond any skill of the brush by the simple and wonderful pen of Defoe. There had been in the interval many seasons, or at least I am informed of so, of sicknesses more widely spread and of death more frequent, if not so sudden. But now this new plague, attacking so harshly a man's most perceptive and valued part, drove rich people out of London faster than horses, not being attacked, could fly. Well, used as I was to a good deal of poison in dealing with my colors, I felt no alarm on my own account, but was anxious about my landlady. This was an excellently honest woman of fifty-five summers at the utmost, but weakly confessing to as much as forty. She had made a point of insisting upon a brisket of beef and a flat pulled cabbage for dinner every Saturday, and the same with a cowcumber cold on Sunday, and for supper a soft road herring ever since her widowhood. Mrs. Whitehead, said I, for that was her name, though she said she did not deserve it, and her hair confirmed her in that position by growing darker from year to year. Madam, allow me to beg you to vary your diet a little at this sad time. It varies every day, Mr. Beastry, she answered somewhat snappishly. The days of the week is not so many, but what they all come round again. For the moment, I did not quite perceive the precision of her argument, but after her death, I was able to do more justice to her intellect and unhappily she was removed to a better world on the following Sunday. 
To men in London of quiet habits and regular ways and periods, there scarcely can be more desperate blow than the loss of his landlady. It is not only that his conscience pricks him for all his narrow, plagiaristic, and even irrational suspicions about the low level of his tea caddy, or a neap tide in his brandy bottle, or any false evidence of the eyes, which ever goes spying to lock up the heart, or the ears, which are also wicked organs, these memories truly are grievous to him, and make him yearn now to be robbed again. But what he feels most sadly is the desolation of having nobody who understands his locks. One of the best men I ever knew was so plagued with his sideboard every day for two years after dinner that he married a little new maid of all work because she was a blacksmith's daughter. Nothing of that sort, however, occurred in my case, I am proud to say. But finding myself in a helpless state without anyone to be afraid of, I had only two courses before me, either to go back to my former landlady, who was almost too much of a tartar, perhaps, or else to run away from my rooms till Providence provided a new landlady. Now in this dilemma I met George Boring, who saw my distress and most kindly pressed me to stay at his house till some female arose to manage my affairs for me. This, of course, I declined to do, especially under present circumstances, and with mutual pity we parted. But the very next day he sought me out, in a quiet nook where a few good artists were accustomed to meet and think, and there he told me that really now he saw his way to cut short my troubles as well as his own, and to earn a piece of enjoyment and profit for both of us, and I happened to remember his very words. "'You are cramped in your hand, my dear fellow,' said he, for in those days youths did not call each other old man, with a sad sense of their own decrepitude. "'Bob, you are losing your freedom of touch. You must come out of these stony holes and look at a rocky mountain.' My heart gave a jump at these words, and yet I had been too much laid flat by facts, sat upon. "'Is the slaying of these last twenty years, and in the present dearth of invention must serve, no doubt, for another twenty. I say that I had been used as a cushion by so many landladies and maids of all work, who take not an hour to find out where they need do no work, that I could not fetch my breath to think of ever going up a mountain. I will leave you to think of it, Bob, said George, putting his hat on carefully. I am bound for time and you seem to be nervous. Consult your pillow, my dear fellow, and peep into your old stocking, and see whether you can afford it. That last hit settled me. People said, in spite of all my generous acts that nobody knows except myself, the frequency and the extent of these, without understanding the merits of the case, perfect, or rather imperfect, strangers said that I was stingy, to prove the contrary, I resolved to launch into great expenditure, and to pay coach fare all the way from London toward the nearest mountain. Half of the inhabitants now were rushing helter-skelter out of London, and very often to seaside towns where the smell of fish destroyed them, and those who could not get away were shuddering at the blinds drawn down 
and huddling away from the mutes at the doors, and turning pale at the funeral bells. And some, who had never thought twice before their latter end, now began to dwell with so much unction upon it that Providence graciously spared them the waste of perpetual preparation. Among the rest, George Boring had been scared, far more than he liked to own, by the sudden death of his butcher, between half a dozen chops for cutlets and the trimming of a wing-bone. George's own cook had gone down with the order and meant to bring it all back herself, because she knew what butchers do when left to consider their subject. And Mrs. Tompkins was so alarmed that she gave only six hours' notice to leave, though her husband was far on the salt sea wave, according to her own account, and she had none to make her welcome except her father's second wife. This broke up the household, and hence it was that George tempted me so with the mountains. For he took his wife and children to an old manor house in Berkshire, belonging to two maiden aunts of the lady, who promised to see to all that might happen, but wanted no gentleman in the house at a period of such delicacy. George Boring, therefore, agreed to meet me on the twelfth day of September at the inn in Reading, I forget its name, where the regulator coach, belonging to the old company and leaving Whitehorse cellars at half-past nine in the morning, allowed an hour to dine from one o'clock onward, as the roads might be. And here I found him, we supped at Oxford and did very well at the mitre. On the following morning we took coach for Shrewsbury, as we had agreed, and reaching the town before dark put up at the Talbot Inn, and sauntered into the dear old school to see what the lads have been at since our time. For their names and their exploits at Oxford and Cambridge are scored in large letters upon the panels, from the year 1806 and onward so that soon there will be no place to register any more of them, and we found that though we ourselves had done nothing, many fine fellows had been instituted in letters of higher humanity, and were holding up the old standard, so that we longed to invite them to dinner. But discipline must be maintained, and that word means, more than anything else, the difference of men's ages. Now at Shrewsbury, we had resolved to cast off all further heat of coaches, and knowing the country pretty well, or recalling it from our childhood, to strike away on foot for some of the mountain wildernesses. Of these, in those days, nobody knew much more than that they were high and steep, and slippery and dangerous, and much to be shunned by all sensible people who liked a nice fire in the right side of the window so that when we shouldered staves with knapsacks flapping heavily, all the wiser sort looked on us as marching off to Bedlam. In the morning, as we were starting, we set our watches by the old school dial, as I have cause to remember well, and we stake half a crown in a sporting manner, each on his own watch to be the truer by sun upon our way back again. And thus we left those ancient walls in the glancing of the river and stoutly took the Welsh Pool Road, dreading not except starvation. Although in those days I was not by any means a cripple, George was far stronger of arm and leg, having always been famous, though we made no fuss about such things then, for running and jumping and lifting weights, using the boxing gloves and the foils. 
a fine, brave fellow as ever lived, with a short, straight nose and a resolute chin. He touched the measuring bar quite fairly at seventy-four inches, and turned the scales at fourteen stone and a quarter. And so, as my chattels weighed more than his, by means of a rough old easel and material for rude sketches, he did me a good turn now and then by changing packs for a mile or two, and thus we came in four days' march to Aberadir, a village lying under Cataridris. End Chapter 2